Hey guys, the pod hacker is back. I got a lot of good feedback from you guys after that last podcast I put out that I stole from Josh Elledge. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that I got a microphone on him, and I know where he is. So, let's keep this party going, eh? So, uh, this next guy he's got, I was listening to it. His name is Mark Schaefer. He's some guy who, like, has this magic touch when it comes to teaching people how to give great speeches and talk up their businesses. I think it's something we can all use, and now it's something we all have. Podhacker out. In your book, Known, you really cover this very, very well, but why should somebody want influence? Well, it's really about the only thing we have left. It's the only permanent, sustainable, competitive advantage a person has these days. You know, if you're applying for a new job and you're known and the other people aren't, you're going to have an advantage. You'll probably get the job because it's going to be the least risky decision because if you're known somehow through your content, people will know how you think, how you act, what you stand for, you know, how you react to things. You know, one example, I was a interviewing for the biggest consulting project of my whole career. It was with the U.S. Air Force. And I had to go through this Skype interview process with these executives at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So they start, I started talking about why I was qualified this for this pr- project. And 90 seconds into my discussion, they interrupted me. And the procurement director said, oh, Mr. Schaefer, we all know who you are. We all read your mm-hmm. blog. At that point, I knew I had the job because I was known and the other people weren't. Josh, that's important today. If you want to raise money for a charity, if you want to write a book, if you want to start a speaking career, if you want to be considered for a university position or a board position or a promotion, if if you've established an effective social media presence, which I think today is a life skill that we, we shouldn't just be random about it. We should be intentional about creating a presence establishing a reputation and authority that gives us a competitive advantage really in the world. But what happens if someone has more qualifications on paper? You're saying that being known is still more important than that in in some cases? Well, I think, of course, qualifications are, are always important. I also think that something deep within us, we we want to connect to people in a human way. We want to do business with people who we like, who we know, who we yeah. trust. Mm-hmm. And even back into the like the first medieval marketplaces, in the medieval times, we would have these organized community bartering places in, in London and in China. We would always want to know who we were working with. There, we didn't have advertising. We didn't have spin. There, we did business with this emotional connection. And we kind of lost our way on that when we, when the era of mass broadcasting started because it became very efficient to give money to an ad agency and then stand back and wait for something to happen. Now that has all turned on its head again in this world of social media. And Josh, Josh I'm sure you've seen the same research that I've seen is that there's this overwhelming evidence that, is, that today, and especially with the digital natives, 
They want to know who you are. They're not being sold on your branding, on your ads, on your spin, on your press releases. They want to know what you stand for. They want to know the people who's, who are working in that, in that company. And not only is there a compelling idea, a compelling case to do this on an individual basis, but I think there's a compelling case to scale this and elevate your employees so they're all known. I love it. So it's almost like a, uh, and, and I've thought about this, you know, this um, idea of having a, uh, a glass house company where you celebrate and, and you tell the stories of those who are part of the operation. Man, I love that. I love that analogy, this glass house thing. You know, I had this very profound uh, piece of wisdom delivered to me from my daughter-in-law. I was visiting at their home. And uh, I noticed they had this soap from the Knoxville Soap Company. That's where I live. And it was cucumber and grit soap. (laughs) (laughs) So I was curious about this soap. And I said, why did you buy this soap instead of Dial or Ivory? These are the big brands, you know, you and I grew up with because that's the ads that were on TV. Those are the brands that we trusted. And I said, why do you love this brand? She thought for a minute and she said, you know, I don't know if I love the brand, but I love the hands that made it. And I think that it just summed up for me this intense, it's, I think it's part of our DNA, is, is that we, we're, I don't think we really want to be loyal to a logo. I think we want to be loyal to a person. And I think about my own experience, I like LinkedIn as a platform, but I think they have a lot of problems. But I've never really gone after LinkedIn. I've never really dissed LinkedIn. And the reason is, is that their content director, Jason Miller, is my friend. To me, he's the face of LinkedIn. And I don't love LinkedIn, but I love Jason. And I'm not going to dis-, dis Jason. I mean, to me, I don't love LinkedIn, but I love the hands that made it. Mm, interesting. So it's so it's like people people don't do business with bi- companies. They they do business with people. Sure. And I think you know if you think about especially in B two B, I think that that's the decision point almost all the time. And. It's like you said, I mean, you need to have a great product. You need to have great service. You need to have a great, great price. But the thing that I think is going to really compel the purchase decision a lot of times is, can we trust this person when you've got expensive products like hardware or software or services, consulting, can we actually trust this person to deliver to help us, to be there when we need us. This is a big decision. I don't want to get fired. Can I bet on this person above and beyond the capabilities of the, of, of the software? So on the B2B, on the B2C side, just like in the, in the soap example, I think that's where things are moving. People, everything's going local. It's going local. It's going artisanal. Hmm. It's the maker movement. It's a, it's, it's, I'll tell you something amazing. So I mentioned my daughter-in-law, she's, she's kind of a community activist in terms of growing the maker movement. Mm. 
here in our city. And so she invited me there having this Maker Summit. She said, we'd like you to be a speaker at the Maker Summit. And I said, well, of course, I'd love to do that. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll bring some of my books and give them out to people there, thinking, oh, you know, there's probably going to be 50 people there. I said, well, how many people are you expecting? She said, we're, we're planning on like 400 this year, between 400 and 500 people wow. Wow. in Knoxville, Tennessee. Not bad. Creating these, uh, you know, it was, it was one of the most inspirational days I've ever had. And, and that's where the energy is today. That's where the heart is today. And that's why these big brands are suffering. Mm. Because they don't, we don't know the hands that make ivory soap or dial. We want that feeling. We want to know the story behind that knife or that candle or that soap or that piece of clothing that we're wearing. You know, I we just went up to uh, North Carolina. So we we live in Orlando here. You know, there are no leaves that change. The leaves don't change Mm -hmm. colors here. (laughs) It's just the same old palms out there. So Floridians will often go up north or at least, you know, somewhere in in the up east and uh, try to catch some leaves changing colors and one experience that I, I mean I I remember and 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 we're still working our way through them but uh, we stopped and uh, someone was selling uh, Honeycrisp apples and mm. they sold them you know twenty dollars a bag and you know you go in and you just meet the the farmer and you know he's involved in it you know as i eat those apples those apples have a story behind it now it's like i you know it's like i stopped at the fruit stand got to know that the, the farmer was a very nice gentleman it's worth more to me what what i paid for um for for those apples than something that was just commoditized um apples at the grocery store or something so it has more value you know, and then you know, then you start thinking about okay, well, how how do you scale, yeah, that personality? How do you scale that story? And really, that's what my book Known is about. Mm-hmm. Is you know, if whether it's apples or or ideas or books or knives or soap or candles, if your concept, if your personality, if your story is known more broadly, then. You know, you're going to do that. That kind of extends to your business these days too. So scale. I think one challenge to scaling is keeping the authenticity, and I think authenticity is a it's a big factor that I think draws people in. Uh, How how have you kind of worked that into what you recommend? And in in like feeling organic and feeling real and connecting with people where they know that this isn't just astroturf. It is hard. You know, I think about this often that I think kind of my sweet spot was when I had like maybe 4,000 followers on social media. You felt like at that level, even though that seems like a lot, that you could kind of handle it. You could Mm -hmm. kind of know people. If you got a question, you could answer a question. Now, I mean, I haven't, I haven't added it up, but I mean, I would say my social media followers are probably in the hundreds of thousands. If you put together, you know, all, all the platforms and all the formats and the readers of the books and the blog and the podcast and everything else. And it's almost like you're in a stadium and you're on the stage and all you can do is kind of slap the hands of the people in the front. And I do devote 
a part of my time just to mentor, just to help, just to give stuff away. And if it's a student or a young person or an entrepreneur and, and they make a, a real authentic attempt to connect with me and I kind of know them a little bit, I'm, I'll, almost, I'll almost always respond. Or maybe I'll just say, you know, look, I, I can't really talk to you right now. I'm, I'm in the middle of a big project, but here's a blog post that would help you. Or look, just read this book, because this is exactly the same advice I'd give you anyway. It, it's important to me, you know, if I can do it, look, let's be honest, I probably have more social media followers than most companies. <laughs> uh, you know, if I can do it, or you look at someone like, like Taylor Swift, she has millions and millions and millions of followers, but yet she's distinctive in that she she does have this human, caring, nurturing way about her. She, you know, there's famous videos of her wrapping Christmas gifts for her for her fans. And she's not doing that for every fan. But I mean, she's doing it enough that and, and you you know, I think that's really her heart. I think you can't you can't fake it in this in this world, Josh, people can sniff a fake in 140 characters or less. You've really got to have a heart for it. And in my heart, I, I am a teacher. I, I, that's my fuel. There's, when, when someone tells me, you've changed my business forever, you've changed my life, that is better than anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. On the subject, Mark, of, of faking then, can you, I mean, you you can't become known by just buying followers, right? Well, no. I mean, that's. I mean, there is an element of social proof that's kind of the elef elephant in the room, um, you know. And I'll give you an example that there's someone very very well known in the social media space who I had a conversation with this guy this summer, and he said, "Well, you know, I'm kind of." Uh, growing my uh, Twitter followers right now. And, you know, I'm kind of at 200,000. And when I get to like 800,000, I'm going to like take it off. So, I mean, he he had some program going there where in a couple mm -hmm. of months he was going to go from 200 to, you know, 500 or 600 or 700. And it's just like, wow. I mean, that just just doesn't seem smart. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of companies aren't too bright about this. And they'll just look at the the number the pure number of social media followers and say oh well he must know what he's doing just based on that social proof without really digging in to see are these real followers are they really engaged with him is this person creating original content does he say any anything that's worth promoting and so i mean on a certain level there is value in this world that's you know kind of undeniable around the power of social proof because there's a lot of lazy people out there that won't go beyond that. But I think in, in terms of really long-lasting power, influence, the ability to be hired, I think true authority will win out. I think true authenticity and true helpfulness will win out in, in the long term. Interesting. Are there any good tools that you know of that, that can help you figure out? So if let's say you're a brand and you want to work with an influencer, like how can you tell if that influencer is going to be a good fit? Well, there, there are some tools out there, but actually I just, I just got finished with a research project 
where I interviewed some of the leading thought leaders in the whole world who are right in the trenches of influence marketing at big, big companies. And every single one of them said, you can start with a tool, maybe to kind of do a first cut, but you cannot make a decision with the tool alone. No. You've got to ask people in your company, who do you respect? And that's a key word, respect and trust. That doesn't come from the number of followers that you have. That comes from your leadership, from your content, from how you engage with people. And so you've got to talk to people. Another really important thing, Josh, you know, let's say we've seen brands get burned by, let's say, aligning themselves with Tiger Woods when he's had his fall. So I think what you, it's more than even just leadership. The, the true leaders in this field today, they're looking at values. They're saying our values have to align. It's like we, we have to be, we have to be friends. You know, we have to be, you know, really on that level to, to be able to work together. So I think that's, look, you can use a tool to do a first cut. Then you've kind of got to look at what are, you know, what are they saying? What are they thinking? How, how are they acting in, in public? What do the other people in my company think about these people? But then you really need to get to know them because this is a big decision. If you're putting your brand on the line with some influencer, you've got to align with values. And that's where it really, you know, I just can't stress that enough. It, and you, you, can't, you can't use a tool. You can't use an algorithm to see if values align. So as, as an quote-unquote influencer myself, you know, I write a syndicated newspaper column and you know, have a decent audience for Savings Angel. Um, I do a lot, a lot of work with USAA, and uh, that's one where uh, I've learned quite a bit from them. And they are really, really big on values, much more so than the size of your audience. And that comes through in their in their commercials too. Oh yeah. So they, I've been working with them for a couple of years. So I've I've learned quite a bit in terms of like working with influencers just by kind of working on the other side with them. And they've they've got their stuff down. <laughs> and um, you, I think it's exactly what you talked about: is is their value alignment? You know, to kind of you know figuring out who my audience is. Is that a good overlap for their audience? Um, but yeah, they do a fair amount of due diligence um, when they look at uh, connecting with somebody. Yeah, I mean, you, you absolutely have to, and um, it works. It works both ways because on the company side, the benefits are obvious. On the influencer side, well, let's say you, you or, or me, and I, you know, kind of, uh, I look. I, I would say. Considering me an influencer that exists in the minds of other people. <laughs> so, I mean, if they call me an influencer, I guess, you know, I'm an influencer. But sure. I put my reputation out there on the line every single day, every piece of content, every word I write. And I have to earn that audience every day. The competition is that fierce. You have to be relevant and superior every single day. And if you're out there shilling for a brand, that's gone. You're not going to be relevant and superior. You're going to be annoying and boring. If a brand asks you 
to sell or to show. That's not going to help either one of you. So the values have to be aligned on the influencer side too, to be able to have that respect to say, look, if you really want to work with me, you got to trust me. And by the way, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of my content. Nobody tells me what to do because I will never, ever let my audience down. And when that happens, guess what? I'm letting my, my company down too that I'm working with hmm. as an influencer. So it's, it's, this, it's this symbiotic relationship. It really revolves around, it really revolves around values and trust when you get right down to it. And again, that's something you can't get from an algorithm. No. How about you? Like, when when do you feel, where, where did you, I say I, this expression, you know, where'd you get your big break? But that's not it. It's like, you know, when, you know, what were some of those moments earlier in, in this space where you started saying, oh, I guess people <laughs> are starting to respect what I have to say. And uh, I feel like I'm becoming known myself. I'll, I'll tell you, this is going to seem like a weird story at first, but I promise you there's a lesson here. My son uh, is an entrepreneur now, but for many, many years, he was a musician and he, he was a very successful musician and he was kind of adopted by the Black Keys. And the Black Keys are, of course, one of the biggest rock bands yeah. on the planet right now. They, they can fill stadiums. And I got to hang out with them uh, on, a, on a time or two. And... Uh, I asked Patrick Carney, the drummer for the Black Keys, and I asked him the, the exact same question you're asking me. You know, what was the big break? What was the big turning point? He said, there wasn't one. He said, month to month, year to year, things just got a little better. You just kept working, kept working, kept working, kept building the audience, kept giving and touring and meeting and greeting and playing and engaging. And this album does a little bit better than that one. And this one does a little bit better than that one. And, and, you know, the Black Keys, I mean, they had made five or six albums before they were playing stadiums. Wow. Before they got into, you know, big, you know, big record contracts and promotion and, and that sort of thing. So, and that's the same way it, it was with me. I mean, I've created two blog posts a week without fail for almost 10 years. You know, I'm I'm at a place where, I mean, it took me, it took two years before I had any kind of really significant revenue coming in. It took three years of podcasting before we had our first sponsor. Hmm. It took seven years of writing books before I really started making decent money from books. So it's not just like, boom, there it is. I mean, I think maybe that happens for some people. They get lightning in a bottle. <laughs> they get a big break. They get, you know, adopted by some, you know, influence or something. And and certainly that can help. But I think for most people, you grind it out. Yeah. You know, you 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 grind it out. You know, there was a comment on Facebook the other day that kind of irked me. I mean, I live in a nice house on a on a lake in the foothills of Tennessee. And this was kind of my big goal my whole life. Yeah. I wanted to have a house on the lake. I didn't want to run a company. I didn't want to be a YouTube, you know, star. But I wanted to have a nice place where my family would enjoy. And she she kind of wrote a snarky comment like that was really kind of jealous about this 
house that I had. And I said, you know, I've worked 32 years before I bought that house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't make any apologies for it. You know, I've worked hard. I've grounded out for a long time. By doing that, you kind of make your own luck. You, you, you become a habit. Uh, as long as I said, you know, as long as you can stay relevant and superior, you become part of the fabric of people's lives. And I think that's more important than even really being a genius, having some huge idea. I, I agree. Um, I think one thing that, that I've mentioned to people is, you know, and I think that in, in, in particularly in the United States, we have this, you know, where you're going to just get discovered one day. If you just, you know, kind of do your thing, Oprah's going to call all of a sudden and she's going to say, congratulations, you're on Oprah's favorite things. I, I don't think that happens very often, you know, where it's just if, if you're quietly doing work. So I, I do think promoting ourselves and doing the work of, as you would say, you know, becoming known. I think that there's more than, it, I mean, there's, there is, right? There's more than just producing widgets. I mean, you also have to now bring those widgets to market. What, what does that work? I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to really answer that question. I mean, certainly in our world, we have unlimited opportunities compared to even 10 years ago. If you think about when I was a young man growing up in business, say, you know, 20 or 25 years ago, how would I become known? This is before the internet. Mm. I mean, I'd have to be in the newspaper a lot, or I'd have to be in a trade journal a lot. That's someone else's decision. There's gatekeepers. And today, we don't have to wait for someone to pick us. We can pick ourselves. You know, you can take out your own Facebook ads, and they're, you know, they can be, they can work really well. And, and it doesn't have to be all that much money. If you want to write a book, if that's part of establishing your authority, you know what? You don't have to wait for a publisher. The publishers didn't like the idea for my first book. I self-published it. I picked myself. When I was starting out as a, as a speaker, nobody would hire me. I could not get hired to be a speaker. So... I started my own conference, promoted it entirely on social media, did not spend one dime on advertising. First year, 425 people were there. We're in this amazing era where we have this incredible opportunity. I, I don't even think, Josh, people really understand <laughs> how much power they have. You know, anyone today, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter all the bad stuff that's happened to you in your whole life. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter how much money you have. None of that matters. As long as you have an internet connection and some device that you can create content, you can have your own influence. You can have your own power. And it doesn't even, you know, you don't even need a lot of money. Uh, like I said, I haven't spent one dime on advertising or promotion. And, you know, I have a very successful business. Wow. Just based on, you know, on a lot of the same things that you've done. We've worked hard. We've been consistent. We've, we've put ourselves out there. We've created content. We've engaged. You know, we've, 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 we've lifted people up. Yep. The, the opportunities are just 
limitless, even even before you get to advertising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's overwhelming. And I just that's one of the great hopes is that look, I acknowledge, you know, maybe it's not the right time for you, but maybe it is. And maybe the right time is a year from now or two years from now. Mm. That's why I'm so passionate about this book that I, I wrote called Known, because it kind of gives this path. So it's like, hey, do you even know the power that's out there for you? Here's how you do it. This is it's a scalable process. I did tons of research in the book, and I'm 100% confident this is the way to do it. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. It doesn't have to be confusing. Just have a plan and give it a try. I love it. So can you, and I don't know if you ever did this or do you advocate this, and I think you and I share some some similar opinions on the current state of the PR industry right now. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, is that it's maybe not evolving with, with the pace that, mm-hmm. that social media and other platforms allow. None of it's evolving as, as fast as I would like. And, you know, I think about when I was in marketing in the corporate world and how we would be just absolutely obsessed with what the customer is, is thinking. We spent an enormous amount of money, not just on surveys, but on, on sending teams out throughout the world to sit with our customers, to really listen to our customers. We trained our employees on how to listen to customers and bring that feedback. And it had a profound impact on our company. And we, and we tweaked and we changed and we adapted and we adopted. And sometimes we even suffered because we had to do things that were not necessarily in our best financial interest in order to su- succeed in the long term. And today, I see a lot of PR, marketing, and sales really being people having their heads in a dashboard. Hmm. They're just looking at numbers. They're looking at statistics. They're relying on algorithms to make the right decision. They're they're doing A-B testing and saying, oh, well, this is the best thing. That may not be the best thing for the customer. The customer may absolutely hate that. And I see so much of what we're doing is being run not by marketers, Mm. not by service people, not by salespeople, but it's IT people in a back room someplace testing these little algorithms. And we see over and over and over again how we have these massive fails because we're we're just doing things that that are dumb because we didn't think. We didn't have a human touch involved. There's an article in the New York Times about how pornographers mm-hmm. are sneaking content into YouTube Kid. Oh, no. Now, why anyone in the world would do that, it's just pure evil. So let's look at the standard for children's content. That would be, let's say, PBS. Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, all those, okay. So, I mean, these are professionals who are, they're based in education, they're learning, they're evolving, they're truly committed to what is going to grow those children. That is not what YouTube is committed to. What YouTube is committed to is just 
it's just blasting so much content out there mm-hmm. that it's going to create more ad revenue for them. And that leaves these open holes. And so here was YouTube's response is that, oh, you know, our, uh, our failure rate is like 0.05%. It's like a needle in a haystack. But you know what? If you create 0.05% failure rate on 11 million views a day, that is a lot of failures. Yeah. That's a lot of children, thousands of children, seeing pornography. Yeah. And then you know what? It's not that hard because here's what you do. You say, okay, here's who can create content for us. Disney. Nickelodeon. And you vet and you say, you know what? We're not just going to let everybody post to this. That's ridiculous. Use your head. Stop using algorithms. That's the, that's the issue here. They've got algorithms approving the content. Mm. They've got computers approving the videos. And they've made this stupid statement saying, of course, we couldn't have enough people. Well, I don't care what the issue is, but you cannot show children pornography. You are letting people down. You are not being relevant and superior. And all you got to do is use your head and say, You've got to be a vetted supplier. We're not going to let everybody post. And we're not going to use algorithms. It's not that hard. And I think that is an example. That is an iconic example of PR, marketing, and sales in total right now. We got our heads in dashboards. We got our heads in algorithms and in SEO and in all these statistics. And we're not using our heads to look up and get in a car and talk to customers and see what's going on in the world and make decent decisions. Yeah. Mark, last question before I know you got a jet. Um, you just re-released the Tao of Twitter. Is Twitter relevant? I, I know I talk with some people who say, you know, I don't really get Twitter. It's not my favorite social media platform. Why should I be invested there? Well, I'll answer that in, 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 on, on two levels. The that reaction that's always been the reaction to Twitter <laughs> since they were in I think they were invented they came out in maybe 2007 and that's okay because it is a little quirky so that has always been the reaction and maybe it'll always be the reaction of Twitter that you know I just don't get it the other thing is is it still relevant even to the people who get it you know what has it become that was the deeper question I really had to answer when creating this book. And I see that there's kind of three worlds of Twitter. There's a business world that doesn't like Twitter because they're not Facebook. They're not growing Mm -hmm. like Facebook. They don't have the revenue of Facebook. They don't have the user growth of Facebook. So they kind of get pounded by Wall Street. Then there are the clueless companies who post and post and broadcast on Twitter, even though this is the most human-powered network and they know it. They don't engage, they don't create human-related content, and then they, then they wonder why it's wrong. They're just, it, why it doesn't work. It's, they're just clueless. And then there's 330 million active users who love it, who go there every day. They spend hours on Twitter, you know, looking at hashtags, playing games, watching videos, watching breaking news, following events. It is... Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It is inspiring to see 
what's really happening? Companies need to take a fresh look at Twitter because, you know, it's it's three times the size of Snapchat. <laughs> wow. And I'm not saying it's the same. I'm not saying it's 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 apples and apples. But I mean, it is relevant. It is powerful. That's not to say it has some problems. It doesn't have some problems. But the people who use it and love it every day, they don't care about the stock price. <laughs> yeah, right. And so there's, there's, I think there's a massive opportunity there. And there's lots of success stories of companies using Twitter in very effective ways. And it's, just, it's like, man, you know, why, why don't more companies think about that? And I hope that they do. And again, so I'm, I just want to make sure that, uh, so the Tao of Twitter, so what's, so you re-released it or what, what, what was real quick, what this was the story? The fourth on edition of the book. Great. The book uh, originally came out in 2011, and then I, I self-published it, and then, it went, and then a traditional publisher, McGraw-Hill, picked it up, and I've actually worked for the last two years to get the rights back to the book to give me a little bit more freedom and a little more flexibility. I got the rights back, and I self-published, and so this is, uh, and uh, I'd say it's, a, it's about, uh, a th- about one-third updated, revised, expanded hmm. over the old book. Uh, I, actually, the old book I held up pretty darn well. I mean, it was a really solid book, but a lot has changed, and I needed to expand it and revise it, keep it up to date. And uh, it's a it's a great book. It's probably my most beloved book. Wow! Uh, all around the world, yeah. So it's it's I'm proud of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I told you this, but uh, known is probably one of the most important books. Easily one of the five most important books I, I read this year. Wow, thank and, you so much. That means a oh, lot to me. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, people ask me, people ask me for books, uh, just because I'm in this space, they ask me for books on PR. Mm. And I tell them, good luck. There aren't any. <laughs> there aren't any good books of PR. Uh, it is yet to be written. But the, the and it's not necessarily PR, but I would say the, I, I always recommend your book. I mean, it said, you know, if you, if you want to step just to just to the left or the right of PR, then <laughs> then known is absolutely uh, my my favorite book that I think accomplishes the same goals that you're that you're asking about. Well, thank you. That's very very kind of you. Appreciated it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for swinging by. Okay, guys, that's all I got this time around. I'm I'm gonna be sending more out to you guys on the internet as I can get it, as, I, as Josh does more interviews. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and, and don't tell Josh what I'm doing. If you know Josh, don't tell Josh. Don't rat me out, okay? Um, but, uh, but in the meanwhile, if you want to spy on Josh too, he's got a website, upmyinfluence.com. And, and you can you can spy on him there too because he's posting these things for real. You, you guys are getting like weeks before him. So, so again, don't tell Josh. Pot hacker out. <laughs>